I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. I've chosen today's case simply because it's one that I remember really well, and it's one that adds weight to the argument that innocent until proven guilty is a hollow sentence when you have trial by media. On the 30th of December 2010, shortly after 7am, police arrested Christopher Jeffries, a retired English teacher, and the landlord and neighbour of Joanna Yates, a 25-year-old landscape architect who disappeared on the 17th of December. Joanna's body had been found at the edge of a quarry near a golf course, three miles from home, just over a week later on Christmas Day. She had been strangled. And this is where you'd expect the case to focus fully on the disappearance and murder of a young woman in the prime of her life. And boy, did the UK press take the opportunity to have their say. And in case you hadn't guessed it, spoiler alert, Christopher Jeffries was innocent. Before we move on to the shocking behaviour of the newspapers in the UK, let's discuss the crime that led to it all. The murder of Joanna Yates. Joanna Claire Yates was born on the 19th of April 1985 to David and Teresa Yates in Hampshire. Privately educated at Embley Park near Romsey, Joanna studied for her A-levels at Peter Simmons College before graduating with a degree in landscape architecture from Rittle College in Chelmsford, Essex. She then went on to achieve a postgraduate diploma in landscape architecture from the University of Gloucestershire. And in case you're wondering what landscape architecture is, it's the design of outdoor areas, landmarks and structures to achieve environmental, social, behavioural or aesthetic outcomes. Thank you, Google. Google's excellent for things like that. Really is, isn't it? I was like, what the hell is that? In December 2008, Yates met 25-year-old architect Greg Reardon at the firm Highland Edgar Driver in Winchester. They moved in together in 2009 before settling in Bristol when the company moved 90 miles to a new office there. Joanna soon changed jobs to work at the Building Design Partnership, also in Bristol, and the couple moved into Flat 1, 44 Canning Road, a flat in the city's Clifton suburb, in October 2010. On the 19th of December 2010, at around 8pm, Reardon returned home from a weekend visit to Sheffield to find Yates absent from their flat. He had been trying to contact her by phone and text, but without success. As he waited for his girlfriend to return, Reardon called her again, only to hear her mobile phone ringing from a pocket of her coat, which was still in the flat. He also found that her purse and keys were at the flat, and that their cat appeared to have not been fed. You know that if we ever go missing, that is exactly what people are going to say about our cats. They're going to look at them and just go, these cats have definitely not been fed in days. The couple must have been missing for some time. The cat's yowling desperately. <laughs> as they do every day. It's like they see any new person appearing in the kitchen as a chance to get some more whiskers. Yes. I'm joking, of course. Our cats are fussy buggers. They don't eat whiskers, they only eat irons because it's more expensive. <laughs> of course. I'm just glad that we have never tried them on Shiva. <laughs> Imagine. So they'd refuse everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly after 12.30pm, Reardon contacted the police and Joanna's parents to report her missing. 
Joanna had last been seen two days earlier on the evening of 17th of December with colleagues at the Bristol Ram pub on Park Street. She left around 8pm to head home, which was about a 30 minute walk. She told friends and colleagues this would be her first weekend in the flat without Reardon and that she was not looking forward to spending the weekend alone. The couple were due to throw a party the following week and she planned to spend her time baking in preparation for it, as well as shopping for Christmas. Around 10 minutes after leaving the pub, Joanna was seen on CCTV at a local waitress supermarket, leaving without having purchased anything. At 8.30pm, she phoned her best friend, Rebecca Scott, to arrange a meeting on Christmas Eve. The last known footage of Joanna shows her in a branch of Tesco Express at around 8.40pm, buying a pizza. She had also been to a nearby off-licence, Bargain Booze, and bought two small bottles of cider. Along with Joanna's friends, Rin set up a website and used social networking to help look for her. A public appeal for her safe return was made on the 21st of December at a police press conference by her parents and boyfriend. Another press conference, broadcast live on Sky News and BBC News, followed on the 23rd, with Joanna's father, David, commenting, quote, I think she was abducted after getting home to her flat. I have no idea of the circumstances of the abduction because of what was left behind. I feel sure she would not have gone out by herself, leaving all these things behind, and she was taken away somewhere. End quote. Detectives had retrieved a receipt for the pizza that Joanna had bought, but had found no sign of it or of its packaging. Both bottles of cider were found in the flat, with one of them partially consumed. With no evidence of forced entry and no signs of a struggle, investigators began to examine the possibility that Joanna may have known her abductor. What is it they say? The majority of murder victims are killed by someone they know? You heard that? I have heard that, um, but I, I don't know what percentage it is, but I think it's pretty high. Yeah, I did try and look up the stats, but I couldn't find them, so um, we'll just go with that. Yes, yeah. it's a lot. On Christmas Day 2010... Joanna's fully clothed body was found in the snow by a couple walking their dogs along Longwood Lane, near to a golf course and next to the entrance of a quarry in Fayland, approximately three miles from her home. On 27th of December, Reardon and the Yates family visited the site of the discovery, with Joanna's father David saying the family, quote, had been told to prepare for the worst, end quote, and expressing relief that his daughter's body had been recovered. Funeral arrangements were delayed as investigators retained the body with the pathologist, Dr Nat Carey, consenting to the release of the body just over a month later, on the 31st of January the following year. Gosh, that's a long time to be in limbo. It really is, and over Christmas and New Year as well. I yeah. mean, don't ever want to mourn anybody, but that's a horrible time of year. It really is. I think really, you know, funeral is like a real catalyst for starting the whole grieving process, isn't it? Yeah, a little people. bit of closure, or the start of a little bit of closure maybe. Yes. An investigation with the name Operation Braid was launched, comprising of 80 detectives and civilian staff under the direction of Detective Chief Inspector Phil Jones, who was a senior officer with Avon and Somerset Constabulary's Major Crime Investigation Unit. Operation Braid became one of the largest police operations in the constabulary's history, and Jones urged the public to come forward with any information to help catch the killer. He especially wanted potential witnesses who were in or around the vicinity of Longwood Lane and Fayland in the period before Joanna's body was discovered. He also stated that the investigation was seeking the driver of a light-coloured 4x4 vehicle for questioning. Which, oddly, 
I don't think he's ever mentioned again. I'm sure they don't mention the vehicle again. I, I suppose that could be that maybe they, that's been ruled out. So maybe the person has come forward and they've so actually, you know, there's nothing to mm. nothing to see here. Possibly. I was going to leave it out, but as I investigated and did the story and wrote it up, it was mentioned more than once. So I thought maybe they're going to come back to it. Maybe it's important. I, maybe I've just missed it. That wasn't the actual make of car of the murderer, was it? Yeah. No. No. The operation led to the force being inundated with thousands of calls. Police examined over 100 hours of surveillance footage along with 293 tonnes of rubbish seized from the area around the flat. Mostly Christmas stuff, I would have thought. Yep, lots and lots of wrapping paper. That's not a job I would want to do. Oh, what, clearing through 900... Oh. <sighs> Think of the rubbish that goes in our bin. All the cat poo. Oh, grim. Crime Stoppers offered a £10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of a murderer, while the Sun newspaper offered a further £50,000. People living in the area were advised to secure their homes and women were warned not to walk alone after dark. The police also began to investigate similarities with other unsolved cases. In particular, the cases looked at were 20-year-old Glenis Carruthers, who was strangled in 1974, Melanie Hall, aged 25, who disappeared in 1996 and whose body was discovered in 2009, and 35-year-old Claudia Lawrence, who went missing in 2009. Now this is odd, because if you assume that all these murders were carried out by the same person, and then further assume that the murderer must have been at least 20 years old, for the sake of round numbers, <laughs> when they carried out the first murder, that makes them born in the mid-50s, making them in their mid to late 50s at the time of Joanna's killing. And it just seems a really long length of time between three or four different cases. It does. I mean, I suppose they've got to look for any sort of links, but just because somebody's been strangled doesn't necessarily mean it's by the same person. Yeah. And if it was the same person, you'd expect more than three or four over that 30-odd year period, wouldn't you? You would. That made, It just made me think then when, when you mentioned that about the um, that Netflix programme about the um, confessions killer. Yeah. <laughs> the man in America who'd confessed to all sorts of things that he had not done. Yeah, his name escapes me now. Yes. Six hundred odd crimes. Yeah, he was he was arrested for one, wasn't he? Mm. Um and he just confessed to, to loads and loads and loads, and it turns out that the six or seven hundred he confessed to only was it a dozen they pinned on him in the end? I think it was, if that. Yeah. It's a six part series, I think it was. Five or six parts. It was really good. Yeah, well worth watching. Definitely worth watching. Investigators identified striking similarities between the Yates and Hall cases, notably their age and appearance and the fact they both disappeared after returning home from meeting friends. The possibility of such connections was later downplayed by authorities and, as we go on to find out, none of the cases were linked to Joanna's murder. Surveillance video from the Clifton Suspension Bridge was gathered by police as the bridge forms part of the most direct route from the crime scene to the Clifton suburb where Joanna had last been seen alive. Because of the poor quality of the footage, it was impossible to clearly identify individuals or car number plates. And that's fine, of course, but should you dare go a couple of miles an hour over the speed limit, they've got no problem at all picking up your front and your back number plates, as well as being able to provide a photo of whoever was driving. Of course, only someone cynical would point out they make money from speeding and not money from solving abductions and murders. Not that it winds me up, of course. Of course not. But no, I do agree. I remember from back in the the noughties, which I hate saying, but you know, <laughs> in the early 2000s, that um, I, we got a speeding ticket through the post. 
me and my then ex-husband. Your then ex-husband? My now ex-husband. <laughs> Makes me think of back in, in the noughties um, that we got a speeding ticket through the post and um, we couldn't quite remember who had been driving. So we went back and said, you know, don't know who was driving. But, you know, yeah, we accept we're doing over the limit. Um, and they sent back a very clear photograph showing me in the passenger seat. Yeah. And that was way back. Yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Mm. It's like when they, um, when they have CCTV in banks and they have robberies and they go, can you identify this person? It's like, well, no, because it's one photo every 10 seconds. Investigators were also aware that the murderer could have used a different bridge to cross the River Avon, less than a mile to the south, in order to avoid CCTV coverage. The post-mortem examination began on 26th of December 2010. Their results were delayed due to the frozen condition of the body. It was initially thought by police that Joanna may have frozen to death because her body showed no visible signs of injury. However, two days later, it was announced the case had become a murder inquiry as the autopsy had shown that Joanna had died as a result of strangulation. The post-mortem indicated that she had died, quote, several days before being discovered, end quote, and confirmed that she had not eaten the pizza that she'd purchased. Do we ever find out what happened to the pizza? No. And it's weird because I always remember that being a, like a real key element of... So she bought a pizza, they've got the receipt of the pizza, there was no evidence of the pizza at the flat. Yeah. She didn't eat the pizza. Yeah, and there's no evidence of the rubbish. Where did the pizza go? I assume the murderer took it. Detective Chief Inspector Jones also revealed that there was, quote, no evidence to suggest that Joanna was sexually assaulted, end quote. As part of standard procedures, police had searched Reardon's laptop computer and mobile phone, and as a result, Joanna's boyfriend was ruled out as a suspect and treated as a witness. At 9pm on the night of Joanna's disappearance, a young woman who was attending a party at a neighbouring house on the same street heard two loud screams coming from the direction of Yates's flat. Another neighbour, who lived behind the flat, said that he heard a woman's voice scream, Help me, although he could not recall exactly when the incident had occurred. I think this is a real shame because obviously there's at least two people there that have heard something. But it makes you think, if you hear someone scream, what do you do? Do you go and, and search for the source of the scream or? No. No. It's like when a burglar alarm's going off, you just go, ah, oh, bloody alarm. Yeah, might have a little look over mm. and see, you know, I'd probably check outside. Yeah. See if I can see anything obvious. I think the worrying thing is, though, is you hear about um, these scams that people perpetuate where they have you know a woman in the street screaming and crying for help and then you go out and get mugged by some blokes who are hiding around the corner mm. but it does it makes everyone really insular yeah those type of scare stories such a shame it is i was always told when i was younger that if you ever wanted to get someone's attention and you were in trouble so if you was in a fire as the example they gave us mm. um you shout right because people tend to come to help you really we mm. were always taught as, as women to mm. shout fire because people are more likely to come for people oh, really? shouting fire maybe I always thought that and I just put it wrong these years. <laughs> quite possibly <laughs> the front door to Yates's flat was removed by officers in order to check for clothing fibres and DNA evidence and to examine the possibility as to whether the perpetrator had entered the flat before Yates's return home on the 30th of December just after 7am the police arrested a man on suspicion of Joanna's murder Yates's landlord, Christopher Jeffries, who lived in the same building, was arrested and taken to a local police station for questioning, while forensic investigators inspected his flat. The police requested, and were granted, permission to extend the time needed to interview Jeffries three times before eventually releasing him on bail. 
But for the three days that he was in custody, the British press did everything but outwardly name him as the killer. And Jeffries, who admits that he doesn't read newspapers, quote, unless there was some I particularly want to read, end quote, and also doesn't have a TV, he was ill-prepared for how vicious the press could and would be. Certainly, during his time in custody, he wasn't shown a single newspaper, and his solicitor, Bambos Sitalu, spared him the details of what was being printed on the front pages. What was his solicitor's name? Bambos Sitalu? I just wanted to make sure the first time was a fluke, that's all. Done. That's no idea that's, that's correct, but that's how I would have pronounced Seattle. it. Bambos Sitalu. Sitalu. Bambos Sitalu. And now I've got La Bamba going around in my head. I've done it repeatedly now, so you've got your choice of which one to use. Miley from all you. <laughs> Upon his release, unable to go back to his flat, he stayed with friends. It was only when Jeffries blithely proposed, as he himself puts it, to go to Bristol in order to buy clothes and washing things, that the truth was revealed to him. In fact, in an interview with Brian Cathcart of the Financial Times some years later, he admits that this prospect of a trip into town, quote, so alarmed the solicitor that he rang to say that if my friends couldn't persuade me not to do it, he would himself come down from London in order to persuade me that this was a very bad idea, end quote. Only then did Christopher Jeffries begin to grasp what had happened. Many newspapers had written their stories before Jeffries' arrest, and with the arrest taking place at seven in the morning, the papers were being published after that. They weren't subtle in pointing fingers of blame. The Daily Mail's front page had the headline, Could this man hold the key to Joanna's murder? Alongside a photograph of Jeffries. The following day, the Sun led with a small photograph of Joanna Yates next to a photo which showed Jeffries 30 years previously, smiling and with very blue hair. Their headline was The Strange Mr Jeffries, Kid's Nickname for Ex-Teacher Suspect. And the thing is, we could all be guilty of judging books by their covers. Jeffries did look eccentric, and I'm going to put the pictures up on the website. Mm. Um, he had pushy hair that, as the papers mentioned, had once been dyed blue. He was a self-confessed loner. You only need to look at someone like Ted Bundy to see it played out the other way. People couldn't wait to make excuses for Bundy because he was tall and handsome. And people, and by people I mean the press, couldn't wait to hang the unusual-looking Jeffries out to dry. Yeah, it is all about how you look. I think that was quite shocking with the whole Bundy case as to, you know, these women flinging themselves at him because he must be innocent because he was so handsome or so charismatic. And the opposite was definitely true of Jeffries in this, that you know, yeah. he looks a bit odd, therefore. Yeah, why wouldn't he be a murderer? He must be guilty, yeah. yeah. Of course, the papers didn't stop at the front page. Page four of the sun broke it down further. Weird. Strange talk, strange walk. Posh. Loved culture. Poetry. Lewd. Made sexual remarks. Creepy. Loner with blue rinse hair. I especially love how the Sun deem loving culture and poetry as the trait of a murderer. <laughs> he, likes, he likes words what rhyme, and sometimes they don't rhyme. A murderer. Obviously a murderer. He goes to <laughs> museums. <laughs> Dare he be cultured. <laughs> it continued. Joanna Yates's murder suspect, Chris Jeffries, was last night branded a creepy oddball by ex-pupils, a teaching colleague and neighbours. Not only that, but it went on to reveal Jeffries' ferocious temper and penchant for throwing things in the classroom, and how he had invited pupils to his home and habitually made sexual remarks. He was also an unkempt and dirty loner 
who was said to be domineering and generally believed to be a homosexual. And again, being gay has nothing to do with the story, or the crime, or anything in between. But the good old son loves to be salacious. Yes. And if you're wondering who those quotes were attributed to, you've guessed it. They were from unnamed sources. An easy way to say what you want about who you want without too many reprisals. Mm. I would normally go on to say that this is a deplorable practice. But seeing as an unnamed source told me that certain Sun journalists are massive arseholes with the ethics of the devil, I won't. Fair enough. Richard Bland, a former colleague, was quoted using the word loner and making a reference to the blue-tinged hair. He also commented on Christopher Jeffries being a dedicated and successful teacher, though that was not given any prominence. What a surprise. What a surprise. The Daily Mirror had a similar take. Joe Suspect is peeping Tom. Alongside that, the lines, Arrest landlord spied on flat couple. Friend in jail for paedophile crimes. And cops now probe 36-year-old murder. And where do you even start with this one? Spied on flat couple. It makes it sound like two cardboard cutouts were being spied on. It's ridiculous grammar, ridiculous journalism. As for having friends in jail, regardless of what they've done, it shouldn't necessarily tar you with the same brush. And yes, there are exceptions to that rule. So take a look at Epstein, for example, and some of his friends. But I know that if I had a friend in jail for paedophile crimes, then A, they would definitely be an ex-friend, and B, it doesn't set me out as any kind of a wrong. Mm. So frustrating. And the summary of the suspect. An arrogant, rude and snobby, nutty professor with a bizarre past. Someone with a ferocious temper who peered through the window of his tenants. And of course, speculation about his sexuality. Quote, his eccentric manner and long-term bachelor status sparked unfounded school gossip that he was gay. Yes, because obviously if you're single... Yep, God forbid... The male, yes, them again, had the teacher they called Mr Strange. The Daily Star called him an angry weirdo who had a foul temper, announcing Joe Landlord a creep who freaked out schoolgirls. The Daily Express showed more restraint than most, quoting yet another anonymous source, an unnamed former pupil saying he constantly made lewd remarks to students. If you haven't already checked out pictures online, you need to do so. Try to avoid recent photographs and the ones from the time of the murder. The pictures used abundantly by the papers at the time show a contrast between the young, beautiful murder victim and her landlord, a grey-haired, wild and windswept-looking retiree. But of course, why stick with conjecture? In one photo, the mirror zoomed in on an A to Z of Bristol that Jeffries had in his car. This was back when sat-navs weren't as common as they are today, and in case you, like me, didn't get what the mirror was hinting at, they helpfully added the caption, and I quote, Evidence. Maps were on the back seat. It's because nobody ever needs to know where they're going. I know, fucking lock him up if that's the evidence. It wasn't until the 4th of March 2011, more than two months after his arrest, that police released Jeffries from bail and stated he was no longer a suspect. Two months. Keep that date in mind for a moment, the 4th of March 2011, as we take a step away from Jeffries for a moment. On the 10th of February 1978, Vincent Tabak was born, raised in Uden, 21 miles north of Eindhoven, and the youngest of five siblings. Vincent was described by his childhood next-door neighbour, John Masuas, as an intelligent, introverted loner. 
Leaving university in 2007, he took a job with Borough Happold, an engineering consultancy company in Bath, and he moved to the United Kingdom, getting himself a flat in the town. For those not familiar with the area, Bath and Bristol are around 13 miles apart. Working as a people flow analyst, he would examine how people move around public spaces, such as schools, airports and sports stadia. Meeting what is said to be his first serious girlfriend through Soulmates, the Guardian's online dating website, and as an aside, whether you read The Guardian or not, their Soulmates column can be hilarious because people often don't gel when they meet and it just all comes out in the interview. You can find it online somewhere if you need to. After meeting his first serious girlfriend, he moved into a flat in Canning Road, Bristol in June 2009. The flat was number two in the same block of flats that Joanna Yates and her partner moved into over a year later. Despite being neighbours, Joanna didn't meet Vincent until the 17th of December. In January 2011, the BBC television programme Crime Watch filmed the reconstruction of the case with plans to broadcast it on the 26th of January edition of the show. Filming of the reconstruction of Yates' last movement started on the 18th of January and within 24 hours, the news coverage of the production had caused over 300 people to contact the police. One breakthrough led investigators to believe that Yates' body might have been transported in a large holdall or suitcase. Two days later, on the morning of the 20th of January, the Avon and Somerset Constabulary arrested 32-year-old engineer Vincent Tabak. The arrest followed an anonymous tip from a female caller, shortly after a televised appeal by Yates's parents on Crime Watch. Following his arrest, the BBC cancelled the plans to air the Yates reenactment on Crime Watch. The road was closed by police, while scaffolding was constructed around Yates' home, and Tabak's adjacent flat was also sealed off. About a mile away, the townhouse of a friend was searched as it was where Tabak was believed to have been staying. The six foot four inch Tabak had previously been ruled out as a suspect during an earlier stage of the investigation and had returned to Britain from a holiday visit to his family in the Netherlands. Whilst spending the new year with relatives in the Netherlands, Tabak saw a news broadcast about the case just three hours after Jeffries had been arrested. He contacted Avon and Somerset police to tell them that Jeffries had been using his car on the night of the 17th of December, saying that it had been parked in a particular position the evening before Joe had gone missing and that the following day it was facing a different direction. A CID officer, DC Karen Thomas, was sent to Amsterdam to talk to him. I did try and find out what the car was to see if it matched that one from earlier, mm-hmm. but I just couldn't find it online anyway. <laughs> Tobac met DC Thomas at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport on the 31st of December and elaborated on his story. However, Thomas grew suspicious of Tabak's vagueness in some areas and was concerned with his interest in the forensic work being carried out by the police. His initial reluctance to give his DNA at the end of the process also rang alarm bells, though he did go on to provide a sample. Incidentally, Christopher Jeffries had given a DNA sample willingly and it was tested against the sample found on Joe's body. Unsurprisingly, it did not match. Within a few weeks, the sample that had been lifted from Joe's body was found to match Tabak. He was subsequently arrested on the 20th of January. On his arrest, Tabak's laptop, phone and car were all taken in for examination and processing. It was revealed that six days before Joe's body had been discovered, Tabak had used Google Street View and was looking at Longwood Lane, in particular the section where Joe's body had been found. In the boot of his car, detectives found minute traces of Joe's blood. 
After two days of questioning, Tabak was charged with Yates' murder. So, you've got circumstantial evidence linking Tabak to the crime, the fact that he lived next door, the suspicions of the detective at the airport, his reluctance to give a DNA sample, the sample that he then gave matching the sample on Joe's body, and all of this led to his arrest and a charge of murder by the 22nd of January. Yes. But it took six more weeks for the police to release Christopher Jeffries from bail and declare that he wasn't a suspect. Six weeks. It's just unbelievable, isn't it? 22nd of January to the 4th of March. It's disgusting. It is. Detectives believe that Tabak overpowered Joe and strangled her to death before bundling her body into the boot of his car, even stopping Asda to buy crisps while her body was in the boot and then dumping the body on Longwood Lane. On the 5th of May 2011, he pleaded guilty to Yates' manslaughter but denied murdering her. His trial started on the 4th of October the same year. He told the court that he had made a pass at Joe, which caused her to scream. Whilst he was trying to silence her, he said that he accidentally strangled her to death. Whoops. The prosecution insisted that it was an intentional and sexually motivated attack. Now, I've never strangled anybody, but I don't think it's the sort of thing you can do accidentally. No, and I can understand if, like when you read that someone's punched somebody in the street and that person has gone down, hit the head and died. Yes, but to strangle someone, it can't It can't be a quick process. It takes a lot of strength, I would have thought. Yeah. Does it break bones? Yes, yeah, no, you're quite right. Yeah, it breaks it, but they, they um, was it um, Epstein, they reckon, has now been strangled. Um, and they said it's because he had a broken bone, which you don't get from hanging. He probably accidentally strangled himself. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. During the 13 days in court, Tabak failed to answer 80 questions. After 13 hours of deliberation, he was found guilty of murder on the 28th of October, 2011. Now, I know the answer to this because I wrote up the episode. But can you guess how long he got for life imprisonment? For life imprisonment? Yep. Sorry, let me rephrase that. Life imprisonment with a minimum term of how long? Um, A minimum term? I I think 10 to 15 years, probably. Okay, you're better than me, because when I read it, I thought 25 to 30 is a minimum for strangling someone. Uh, Sentence to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 20 years. Right. I mean, I think life imprisonment should actually be life imprisonment. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's oh yeah, it should certainly be longer than 20 years, I think, but it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It is a difficult one. Later investigation revealed that in the months leading up to Yates' death, Tobacco used his computer to research escort agencies during business trips, in the United Kingdom and the United States, contacting several sex workers by phone. He also viewed violent internet pornography, depicting women being controlled by men, showing images of them being bound and gagged, held by the neck and choked, and including images of a woman who bore a striking resemblance to Yates. In fact, he'd watched the same pornography on the morning that he murdered Joe. Details of the pornography viewed by Tabak were not included in the prosecution's case, as the judge believed it did not prove that Tabak had acted with premeditation. I think that's reasonable, yeah, to yeah. be fair. You know, looking at porn is not a crime. No, nope. contacting sex workers by phone is not a crime. No. But is there an argument to say the way that Joe was murdered is stuff that he'd been looking at online and there was resemblances... Quite possibly, but then how many people look at that type of porn and don't go around and murder their neighbours? Yeah, 
I can see why the judge left it out. Yeah. I think it would have set a bit of a dangerous precedent in that case. Yeah, if someone gets convicted on the basis of that evidence and not on the circumstantial or the forensic yeah. evidence that's there, yeah. yeah, it's not really needed to round off a case, is it? It's not. No. It doesn't stop there, though. In December 2013, the Crown Prosecution Service announced that they would be prosecuting Tabak for possessing indecent images of children. On the 2nd of March 2015, Tabak pleaded guilty to possessing more than 100 of these images, and he was sentenced to 10 months in prison to run concurrently with his existing life sentence for murder. Now, see, I think that's not enough for that. No, 10 months for that. It's just it's not ridiculous. Eno- it's nowhere near enough. When you think about what's happened to those children in those images, and that's destroyed their, yep. their lives, you think it's gonna, that's going to prey on them for, for years. Yeah. Well, forever. It- Without wanting to defend Tabak, it also doesn't fit in with the rest of the case at all. Mm. Just I found it really odd, but obviously he's been found guilty, so mm. screw him. Yes. As for Christopher Jeffries, he subsequently won an undisclosed sum in libel damages for defamatory news articles published following his arrest. I have tried to find out the figures online, but they vary, obviously. Um, it does seem to be, in total, a low six-figure sum. It's a, a big amount of money, but it's a low amount of money for the sheer hell he must have gone through. Well, yeah, they've just destroyed his reputation, haven't they? Because no yeah. matter what happens now, if someone hears his name who's familiar with the case, they will instantly think, oh, he's that. was he that bloke who murdered that woman? Was that? Oh, no, he didn't. But Yeah, and even though we're doing a podcast, and I think it's fair to say we've come down fairly heavily on his side, mm. we're still talking about him, and we're still linking his name to the case because that's how he's going to be known. It is. Yes. He did also receive an apology from Avon and Somerset Police, well that's alright then, for any distress calls to him during the investigation. To be fair to Avon and Somerset Police, they've got to obviously investigate. I think, I can't see why it took them so long to clear him once they'd arrested Tabak. That is a definite failing. But to actually, you know, initially they thought that they had had a case. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Um, The biggest injustice is the fact that the papers pretty much named him as a killer. Yes. Um, and yeah, the police were right to apologise because there were six weeks there that they, they pretty much could have gone, actually, you're off the hook. Yes. Um, because they had nothing linking into it. Absolutely. Now, considered a privacy crusader, Jeffries has had his story made into a TV drama called The Lost Honour of Christopher Jeffries, which is available on Amazon Prime. And that is the case of the murder of Joanna Yates. What are your thoughts? Do you remember the case being in the news and the arrest of Christopher Jeffries? What about the sentencing? A minimum of 20 years for the murder and then a further 10 months for having indecent images of children. Does that seem appropriate to you? Let us know by emailing us. You can reach me, dan, at sublimetruecrime.com and me, elaine, at sublimetruecrime.com or come and join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget, if you like the podcast please click subscribe. We'd also love it if you could rate us on your favourite podcast provider, as this will motivate us to make more episodes. In the meantime, I've been Dan. I've been Elaine. Please join us again next week for another Subline True Crime.